This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Good to be here with you today. Thank you so much for having me and letting me be here and our whole family. Uh, taking up a whole row that may have been your row, but we appreciate you sharing with us. We have a, a number of just good connections with Cedar Springs. Uh, most predominantly, we have a Blankenship that is a member at Center City Church. She is no longer a Blankenship. She's a Castleberry, uh, but we have some roots, and so it's a good relationship here. Can I just commend you for a minute on your singing as a church? It is good to be in a church where the music is not for entertainment, but it is for the congregation to join and sing. And so, so good to sing with you all this morning. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through verse 12. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is what the word of the Lord says in James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we can come to this text this morning. Lord, as we have sung about already uh, in so many different ways, Lord, and as we have heard in the Um, leading of the service, Lord, that we want justice and we often want it most when we are going through trials and it feels like life is most unfair towards us. We pray this morning as we come to your word, we would find a different way. Lord, a way that is producing something in us, a way where, Lord, you are bringing about an unspeakable kind of joy in the midst of hardship. Lord, a way that leads to the crown of life, which has been promised by God. So, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be softened to hear your word this morning and that your word would do a good work in us today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So, growing up, I am from the East Coast. My family lived and operated a 
Christian summer camp in Columbia, South Carolina. And each week, the kids would come for camp, and there would be a series of electives that would be offered to the kids that came to camp. Things like, you know, making rockets or swimming or outdoor survival, which was one of my favorites. And outdoor survival, we would teach the kids, uh, very much like the class sounds, how to survive outdoors. We would teach them how to find and make shelter, how to cook food outdoors, how to start a fire, basically our version of Bear Grylls before Bear Grylls was ever a thing on TV. One of the themes of that elective, though, was that we would teach kids how to use a few select tools in order to navigate the dangers of the outdoors. We would teach kids how to use a flint to start a fire, how to use a compass to navigate direction, how to use a rope to tie certain knots, because if you learned how to use these few tools, your chances of surviving in the wilderness would go way up. This morning, James is going to give us three tools for navigating the dangers of this world. Knowing how to use these tools as a Christian, knowing their purpose, their function, their intended result, greatly increases our odds of survival in a world, like Gary said, that seems so unfair, so hostile to the Christian faith. If I were to put it in the form of an argument, we would say it like this. God has given Christians three tools to strengthen our faith as we navigate the trials of this world. God has given Christians three tools to navigate our faith as to strengthen our faith as we navigate the trials of this world. So if you have your Bibles and they're not already open from the scripture reading, turn to James chapter 1 beginning in verse 1 and follow along as I preach a message entitled Tools for Everyday Faith. So at our church at Center City, we had started going through the book of James a couple of weeks ago. We are pushing into chapter 2 this morning. One of our other elders is filling in and preaching for me, and he's pushing into the second chapter. James is a letter that's being written by a man, James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. He's writing to Christians who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire, as we find in the very first verse, 12 tribes in the dispersion. They've been scattered as a result of persecution in the early church. You might remember the persecution of Stephen that led to the scattering of Christians away from Jerusalem in the book of Acts. James served as one of the early elders in the church of Jerusalem. In fact, he might have been the equivalent of what we would call a lead pastor or senior pastor in that particular church. And he's writing to people who were likely once members of his church under his pastoral care. They've been scattered by the persecution, and yet they still need some guidance from their pastor on how to live out their faith as aliens or as exiles, as they're often called in the New Testament, Christians living in a world that is hostile to their faith. James is writing, he's teaching them, as we've called it in our series, how to have an everyday kind of faith. So this morning, we're going to look at three tools for everyday faith. Tool number one is the tool of steadfastness. So unlike Paul, 
who you who spends a lot of time, oftentimes half a letter, laying this rich theological foundation before he ever gives you a command, James wastes no time in offering up his first command. James is going to, as I would say to our church, he's going to just punch us in the nose right at the very beginning of his letter. He's going to offer up the first of what will end up being 54 commands in this letter. And this first one is a doozy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You've probably heard this command before. You've probably heard this verse before. Some of you may not like this verse very much because of the way it's often shared amongst Christians. Perhaps someone shared it with you when you were going through a difficult time as if you could just flip a switch and find joy in the midst of your trial. Perhaps you've seen it on an Etsy sign at someone's home with beautiful flowers and lemonade or things like that on the, on the nice uh, piece of artwork. It's often used with what we might call just a cheer-up theology. Don't let the hard times get you down. Just put a smile on your face. Or my favorite, growing up in the South, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. If only it were so easy as that. These contrite Christian sayings, the way we use them, have often done more harm than good. And yet, we shouldn't let the misuse of these verses lead us to miss the importance of one of these foundational verses on how it is we navigate the trials of this life. So let's see what James is really calling us to here. Remember, James is writing to Christians who are experiencing trials. They're living as foreigners in a world that is not their own. This word of trial is a word of a of a test. It's a kind of testing of your faith. It's a word that's used in the book of Hebrews to describe the way that Israel tested the character of God for 40 years in the wilderness. And for 40 years, God proved himself faithful to Israel. This is the kind of test that a teacher might give his or her students to assess how much they've learned in their class. These trials are here being referred to the testing of character of the Christian. It's this testing that is revealing the strengths and weaknesses in the faith of the Christian. And James says that we are going to meet these trials of various kinds. This word meet or encounter is maybe not quite doing justice to the word that's used here. It has more the idea of falling into a trial or stumbling into a trial, the way you might miss a step and stumble into the stairs or catch a raised part of a sidewalk and stumble into the sidewalk. James is saying that you don't have to go looking for trials. You don't have to make trials up in your life. If you live long enough, you will find trials. You will stumble your way into trials of various kinds. Maybe they're financial trials. 
loss of income or unexpected bills or home repair or a tight budget month to month. Perhaps there are vocational trials, loss of a job or getting passed over for a promotion or struggling through school to prepare for your career. Maybe they're relational trials, conflicts and relationships with other church members or family members or children or parents who are making poor life decisions. Or perhaps they're health trials, living with chronic pain or receiving a difficult diagnosis or living with a terminal sickness. These are the various trials that we will stumble into living in this world and it often feels unfair, unjust. But James calls us in the midst of these trials or rather he commands us to count it all joy when we face such trials. This word count or consider is a word of the mind, not a word of emotion. He's not saying just grit your teeth and smile your way through the trial or pretend like everything's okay or just sing the song, don't worry, be happy. He's not even saying that the trials themselves should be joyful in their experience. What he's calling us to do is to change our mindset from one of viewing these trials as a barrier to faith to viewing these trials as a benefit to faith. You see, the joy isn't found in the details of the trial that you're going through. Joy is found in what the trial produces in your life. Look at how he says this in verse 3. For, or this is the, the reason why we can count it all joy. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Right? We can count it all joy when we go through trials because of what's being produced as a result of the trial. This is our tool of steadfastness. Some of your versions may use the word perseverance or endurance. This word steadfastness, it literally means to remain underneath the pressure of something. It has the idea of like bearing up under the weight of a trial. It's a word that we might equate to a spiritual toughness, if you will. It's the way a clam produces a pearl. Right, as a grain of sand gets into the shell of the clam and the clam responds to the irritation of that grain of sand by beginning to coat it with a mineral-like substance. And what started out as an irritant to the clam, when coated by this mineral, produces something far more beautiful and far more valuable than what initially entered the shell of the clam. Steadfastness is the beautiful and valuable joy in the Christian life that God uses to perfect, to mature his work in our lives. But James says this work of maturation doesn't happen apart from the irritant of life's trials. So James says, consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds, not because the trial is joyful, 
No, in fact, it's quite the opposite. Trials are usually painful. They're crushing. And yet what's being produced through the midst of that trial is a jewel that can only be found on the other side of the test. So brothers and sisters, I would ask you this morning, what's the trial that you find yourself going through? I would ask you to reconsider how you view the trial that you're enduring. Whether it's financial or familial, vocational, relational. Consider it all joy, knowing that God is producing a rare and costly jewel in your life. Brothers and sisters, though, may we also be just a bit more careful in our use of the scriptures when we come alongside of one another in trials. May we be careful of the contrite use of these phrases, of these verses that we know are in scripture but may we use them with a little bit more depth to come alongside of one another in the midst of the trials that we walk through in church together. This first tool is the tool of steadfastness. The second tool that James is going to unfold for us is the tool of wisdom. Now, James has a unique style of writing, and I, I will admit, if, if I could do so, I'm sure I'll get flack when I get to heaven for saying this, but I prefer Paul to James. Paul just makes more sense to me. It's more logical. It just, I like the foundation of theology before command. James is just very circular in his writing and his reasoning. He introduces these three topics we're going to talk about today, and then if you were to continue reading, you would find he goes back and he cycles through all three topics again. And then he goes back through and he cycles through all three topics again. It just seems to be a little too circular for my thinking. But there's something beautiful that James does in the way that he writes and that he connects his thinking through the repetition of a word at the end of one thought and to the beginning of the next. Look at how verse 4 ends. Let this... Uh, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you like to mark in your Bibles, I just encourage you to underline that word, lacking. Because we're going to see it in verse 5 as James transitions to his next thought. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. You see here, James is referring to wisdom that is necessary for navigating the trials that he's already referred to. See, God is at work in the midst of trials to perfect and complete us, but until we get to heaven, we're always going to be lacking. We're always going to be in need of knowing how to navigate with wisdom the trials that we go through. Wisdom is more than just the knowledge of how to do something. It's more than just uh, acquiring a knowledge by reading a book or taking a class, but it's knowing how to put an, acqui an acquired knowledge into everyday life, into practice. Let me give you an example. My wife and I could each bake you a cake. We could use the same recipe we could use the same set of ingredients. 
We could follow the same set of instructions. We're pulling from the same base of knowledge. And I can guarantee you, 10 out of 10 times, you would prefer my wife's cake to my cake. Hands down, no questions asked. We're operating, though, from the same source of knowledge, but she has a kind of wisdom when it comes to baking that I don't have. James here is acknowledging that it takes a certain kind of wisdom to navigate the trials of life. And you may find that you lack the wisdom as you enter into trials to know how to make it through. James is going to unfold for us three questions, or he's going to answer three questions you may have about this kind of wisdom. Question number one is, where does wisdom come from? This is an important question. If wisdom is what we need, we need to know where do we find it. James says that God is the source of wisdom, right? If you lack wisdom, where do you go for it? Go to God. God has this wisdom. He's saying that this wisdom that produces steadfastness can't be found in yourself or from your Facebook friends, or purchased at Walmart. It has to be found in God. I love the way the poem in Job chapter 28 answers this question for us of where wisdom is found. I'm just going to warn you, this is a little bit longer passage of scripture than I would normally read in a sermon. But I feel like it has to be read in its entirety And it's a beautiful poem to just sit and listen to as this question is going to be answered of where wisdom is found. So just listen as I read from Job chapter 28, beginning in verse 12. Where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's it's not in me. It can't be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal, No, the price of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? Where is the place of understanding? It's hidden from the eyes of all the living, and it's concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we've heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it. He knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil 
is understanding. Listen, God is the source of our wisdom. Job says it can't be found anywhere in this world. It can't be mined in the depths of the mountains. It can't be brought up from the depths of the ocean. It can't be purchased for anything that you own. It can only be found in God. Which brings us to the second question. How do we then go about getting this wisdom? If God has this wisdom and we can't find it out and search for it, and if we can't purchase it with our money, how do we acquire this wisdom? Well, James says it's actually quite simple. We ask. We ask God. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. This is the language of prayer. We go to God in prayer. We go to God and we ask God for the wisdom that we don't have. And you say, well, well, that sounds a little too easy. Little too easy. It's got to be more complicated than that. Why doesn't God make us solve some kind of riddle or jump through hoops or doesn't he offer it to us for a price? Why would he just dispense wisdom when we ask? Well, he goes on to say, because God gives generously to all without reproach. Get this, God is generous in the way he loves to give wisdom to those who ask. It's why he's not concealing it from us. It's why he's not making us jump through hoops to get it. It's why we only have to ask because he loves to give it. He is generous in the way that he dispenses wisdom to those who ask. Now the next question might be then, if it's that easy to get, what would ever prevent someone from acquiring it? Well, this is what the rest of the verses unfold. The answer is doubt. Doubt will prevent us from acquiring wisdom. Look at verse 6. Let him ask in faith, with no doubting. Now, it's, I think, good for us to unfold this word doubting because we might get a little discouraged because if you're like me, I, I, when I go and ask God, I feel like I doubt all the time in my asking. But notice how James unfolds this language of doubting. He calls this person double-minded. It's literally someone who has their thoughts divided internally inside of them. One part of them thinks one way, one part of them thinks the other way. So this double-minded person, this person with doubt, isn't someone who has little faith, because we're told from James's half-brother that little faith can accomplish quite a bit in the Gospels. It's not even being faint-hearted when we go and ask. It's not even wondering how God could possibly work in the situation that we find ourselves in. In the context of James, I believe what James is describing in the doubting person and the double-minded man that's described here is a person who says they have faith, but whose actions look like they have no faith at all. Let me give you a couple examples in the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. 
Or how about James chapter 2, verse 14? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? You see, James is very concerned in his letter about people who claim to have genuine faith, but their lives look no different. People who claim to be changed by Jesus, and yet their lives, when they're not around Christians, look no different than they were before they said they knew Jesus. James calls this kind of faith a very hypocritical kind of faith, a faith that is no faith at all, because genuine faith always leads to a change in action. That we can't just be hearers of the word and not doers of the word. This is what genuine faith does in us. So when we bring this back to doubting and being double-minded in the way we ask for wisdom, I think James is describing a person who claims they have faith that God will give them wisdom, but whose lives convey a different message. This might be the person who hedges his bets by praying to God for wisdom, but also checking the tarot cards and rubbing the rabbit's foot just in case they have some power in them. James is saying this is double-minded in our ways because we're claiming one thing with our mouths, but we are doing something else with our actions. Such a person, James says, should not expect to receive anything from God. This person is like a wave that is tossed to and fro by the wind. There's a story that Warren Wiersbe tells of his secretary in his church during a time when she was going through severe trials. Her husband had just lost his sight, and she had recently suffered a minor stroke. And then the husband suddenly grew ill, was rushed to the hospital, and everyone expected him to pass away in the coming days. Wearsby would write this, I saw her in the church one Sunday, and I assured her, as a good pastor would do, that I was praying for her. To which she said, What exactly are you asking God to do? Her question startled Pastor Wearsby, and he responded, Well, I'm asking God to help you and to strengthen you. To which she said, I appreciate that, but I want you to pray one more thing. Pray that I'll have the wisdom not to waste all of this suffering. See, brothers and sisters, this is what it looks like to ask God for wisdom without doubting. It doesn't minimize the severity of the trial. It doesn't even pretend to know what's going to happen in the coming days. It doesn't even put our faith in the change of circumstances that might come about. But what it does do is it searches from God the work that he is doing, the wisdom that he can provide for us in the midst of suffering so that the trial is not wasted, but steadfastness is produced in our lives. Tool number one is the tool of steadfastness. Tool number two is the tool of wisdom. Tool 
Number three is the tool of humility. Now, if you thought the first two were tough, (laughs) it's this third one that uh, can really get you here. Many of the trials that the early Christians faced were often ones that impacted them economically, financially. Following Christ came at a cost, the cost of losing land or losing business or an inheritance or job. Losses that, I might add, might be the kinds of losses that we face more and more in the coming days as you try to follow Christ. As issues of gender and sexuality play themselves more and more into the corporate realms, or as people are quicker to cancel business owners who are following after Christ, Christian, you may have to make difficult decisions in your pursuit of Christ that potentially come at a financial cost to you. I think it's good that we go ahead and prepare ourselves for those potential coming days if the Lord chooses to bring them our way. But the result of these financial trials that were faced in the early church often led to a disparity in the church between the rich and the poor. You see, the church often had large financial gaps between many of their church members. People who were financially well off according to the standards of this world and church members who didn't have many financial resources at all. If you were to continue reading through the letter of James, you would find that this is a, an important issue that James is going to address over and over and over again. James begins to speak and he unfolds throughout his letter that neither position, both of wealth or poverty, is inherently good or bad in and of itself. Instead, they each have their own set of challenges and unique ways that the gospel must be applied to live in church unity with this kind of financial disparity amongst its members. In fact, I think we might even note that it actually seems like it's a good thing that a church have this financial range within their congregation. It forces the church to live out the gospel in very real and practical ways amongst themselves. James is going to speak both to the poor and to the rich as he unfolds this final tool of humility. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. James here is describing the person, the church member, who is lowly. And what he's referring to here is one who, according to the standards of this world, doesn't have very much financially, doesn't have a whole lot of resources, doesn't live in a nice home, right? A person, according to the world standards, would be in a low position. What James reminds this person of, the gospel that they are to remember and apply in their lives, living this way in the church, is that they are to find their boast in the coming exaltation that they have in Christ, He's reminding them that true riches and treasures are not to be stored up in this world, but they're stored up in the next. You see, it's tempting to let poverty in this world distract us from the coming riches in the next. 
It can easily lead to envy and jealousy of other church members. It can lead to a sort of self-focused pride that focuses so much on our low position where we begin to expect others to come to our aid in times of need. And yet we have the model in Jesus of one who lived quite humbly, quite lowly in this world, only to be exalted by God and given a name that is above every name, a name that one day everyone will bow down to. In a similar fashion, Christian, from humble means, you too will be exalted by God to know the riches of heaven. But to the rich man, James has a few words as well. Look at verse 10. And let the rich man boast in his humiliation. Notice how this is almost flipping the script in the exact opposite way. This is to the church member who is rich according to the standards of this world. A church member who has all the financial resources at their disposal. James calls this church member to look to the humility that's found in the gospel. Not to put your trust in earthly treasures, but to be reminded of your humble position in Christ. Your money doesn't buy your place in heaven. It doesn't even buy you a bigger place in heaven. Gives the illustration of a flower whose beauty blooms for a season, but only lasts until the sun comes and scorches its petals. Just as the flower fades, so will the riches of your wealth. You see, the rich man and the poor man both enter the kingdom of God the same way, by faith in Jesus. This is how we're brought into God's kingdom. This is how we're brought into heaven is the same path of faith in Jesus. You see, both ways of living, whether you find yourself in poverty or wealth, are fueled by the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, who knew the riches of heaven, pursued a life of humility here on earth, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be clung to or grasped. But in his humility, he became a human and took on the form of a servant and was obedient to death, even the humiliating death of the cross. But it's this humility that was then followed by exaltation as he was raised from the dead and exalted to the place of honor at the right hand of the Father so that any who would come to him in the humility of faith might have their sins forgiven and be exalted to know the riches of Christ. Listen, if you're here this morning and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you have been trusting in your own wisdom or your own riches or so focused on your low position in this world, listen, today is the day for you to put your faith and trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. He is the way both of humility and exaltation. James is going to conclude this section 
by circling around to his original thought on the steadfastness in the midst of trials. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. See, brothers and sisters, there is a treasure that is more valuable than the riches of this world. The crown of life that's given to those who find their joy in Christ in the midst of trials as God is producing steadfastness in them. This is a priceless jewel that can only be found in our pursuit of Jesus. I read a story in another sermon about the great Bible commentator Howard Hendricks. This is the way Howard Hendricks tells this story. He once had the opportunity to play the town's champion checkers player. Hendricks was just a young fellow at the time, and he was confident that he could take on this old veteran champion checkers player. He was given the first move, and he decided to set a rather aggressive pace in the match. After a few moves, his opponent put a piece in the line of fire and said, jump me. Hendricks jumped the piece and he scooped it up triumphantly and his confidence was beginning to grow. He thought he was well on his way to victory. And then his opponent put another piece right in the line of fire and again said, looks like you'll have to jump me again. Hendricks happily took his peace and his confidence began to grow more and more when all of a sudden it happened that this veteran checkers player picked up one of his pieces, jump, 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 right into the king's territory, to which he announced to Hendricks, crown me. After that, young Hendricks had no chance as piece after piece was pounced upon until all of his pieces were gone. Dr. Hendricks said this in his sermon, No good checker player minds losing an occasional piece. In fact, he can do so with joy so long as he knows he's headed for a crown. See, brothers and sisters, trials will take away the occasional checkers piece, but count it all joy, knowing that you're heading for a crown. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be together this morning. What a joy to be here at Cedar Springs and to worship with these brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I thank you for their partnership in the gospel, for their faithful elders to the word. And Lord, as this has been a tough, tough text to unfold, it's a tough one to hear, it's a tough one to swallow and to want to even apply in our lives, I pray that you would use your Holy Spirit, Lord, to just continue kneading this text into our lives throughout the week. May your word mold us and shape us and conform us and perfect us more and more into the image of our wonderful Savior, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.